Looking for the backstory to great audio storytelling? Well, you found it. I'm Rob Rosenthal, and this is How Sound, a production of PRX and Transom. Andrew Leland reported a story a few months ago, and it was like no other story he'd worked on. So many unusual challenges. For starters, making sure not to puke. I had to take an anti-nausea drug. There were recording issues, too. Sometimes he used a handheld mic, other times a lavalier mic in order to be hands-free. It was like this little mic that I think normally you would put on like a collar, but they actually taped it to my forehead. And then there's the part about reporting in zero gravity. I think technically it's not zero gravity. It basically, it's just like effectively zero gravity. But why, why, why get into that now? Why undermine your awesome setup, which is that, yeah, I, I flew in, in zero gravity. Yes, I did. Unless you're a physicist, in which case, no, I did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love hearing you think out loud like that. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with my brain or mouth, but that's how they work in tandem. All right. <clears throat> You're listening to Radio Lab. Andrew's story aired on Radio Lab back in March. It's called The Right Stuff, a nod to a book with the same name by Tom Wolfe. Here's the opening. Hey, I'm Latif Nasser. I'm Lulu Miller. This is Radio Lab. And today we're going to start... All right, here we go. ...with reporter Andrew Leland. I'm just going to hold my mic like I'm doing a karaoke. Where are you on, on planet Earth? Where are you doing karaoke from? I'm in Long Beach, California. All right, so now I'm just going to wander around talking to people, gathering gathering it all. At a place called the FBO, which is like a tiny private airport. Just one building sitting on a giant tarmac. And so I walk into the building through these sliding glass doors, and it's this big, bright room with a fish tank in it and these fancy chairs, and it's full Hi guys. of people. Hi, how are we? Good. There is a film crew. How are you today? There's some family members. Hey, Anna, can I come in and linger? You can always linger, Andrew. And the whole place is just sort of a buzz. How's the team, how's the team feeling? Good. Are we good? You seem good. Because today is, after months of preparation, flight day. It's this training flight for potential astronauts to experience near zero gravity. And so scattered about the room I think you're, you're, you're suit. are these people wearing yeah, with the, with the jumpsuit. these jumpsuits, these flight suits. How you feeling? Good. Got your ticket. Got my boarding pass. Got your flight suit. You're ready to rock. Yeah, I rock and roll. Some of them look nervous. Some of them so we're gonna play a game of cards. are at a little table. Before taking off for our flight. And these people are the people who everybody's here to see. They're known as the ambassadors. Let me take a moment to explain the ambassadors. Andrew's story asks big questions. Who gets to go to space? Only people without disabilities? Well, what about people with disabilities, people with hearing impairments, people who are blind, people in wheelchairs? Can they all be included? Should they be included? And what are the advantages and challenges? That's what the ambassadors hope to figure out. They're part of a project called Mission Astro Access. They will all board a special plane designed for training and testing astronauts. And as the Astro Access website puts it, the ambassadors will, quote, experience weightlessness, and carry out lunar gravity, Martian gravity, and zero gravity observations, and experiments investigating how the physical environment aboard space vessels should be modified so that all astronauts and explorers, regardless of disability on Earth, can live, work, 
and thrive in space, unquote. Andrew went on that plane to document the tests, what's known as a parabolic flight. And can you just, can you just explain what that is, actually? So really simply, you're on a plane, the plane starts to ascend, and it's somewhat violently up, like the nose is pointing 45 degrees into the sky. And then at like 32,000 feet, the pilot cuts the thrust of the engines and starts to level the plane back out. And it's in that moment, because of physics, gravity starts to get canceled out. And what you get is this little window of like 20 to 30 seconds where you feel weightless, where you feel like you're just floating in space. Kind of incredible, really. The ambassadors will experience weightlessness 15 times. They're weightless, then gravity returns. Weightless, gravity, weightless, gravity. This is why the anti-nausea medicine comes in handy. I mean, the plane is nicknamed the Vomit Comet, and there's a place on board called a pain cave for people when they're feeling sick. I was talking to a friend of mine who, who had also been on one of those planes, and I said to her, like, 98% of the time I was deeply uncomfortable. And then her reply was like, yeah, but that 2% was amazing. Consider this. Andrew will be floating in the air several times. He'll need his hands to protect himself from crashing into walls and the floor and other people. That's why he needed to be hands-free. But there was more to recording than just mounting a mic on his forehead. Andrew and the team at Radiolab worked with a Hollywood sound guy to get it all right. Here's the setup. Mic on the head, no Bluetooth that wouldn't work on the plane, so the mic was wired to a very small electrosonics recorder. It's smaller than a pack of cigarettes. And the recorder was strapped to Andrew's arm. A few other people on the trip had similar setups. On the ground before takeoff, the sound guy controlled the recorders using an app on his phone. He synced the recordings, set the levels, and bam, off they went. And we fly out over the Pacific Ocean, north of San Francisco. Okay? Yeah, all right. Just, I'm just chilling. And they start bringing people out into the main area with the padding. Have a great time. All right, here we go. Oh, two minutes. Everybody kind of takes their positions. So you said they did install them. Say again? But you said they did install them. They did, they did. Positive. Blind crews checking on their sound system. I see one guy lying on a mat who uses a wheelchair. He's got a strap around his legs. With the hope being that it is tight enough to keep my legs spreading apart and doing a split. Everybody's getting ready. And then... Now we're heading up, up the hill. The plane starts climbing. I can feel it. Oh, my goodness. Time to lay down. Time to lay down. We get up to 20,000 feet. 25,000, 30,000. And then at 32,000 feet. We enter zero gravity. And suddenly people are just floating everywhere. Bouncing off the walls. And there are just all these bodies moving around in space. And it's pretty chaotic and disorienting. But it's like you get a peek into this other world and then it's like... And they're back to gravity. So yeah, between fighting off the nausea and the recording complexities and learning to be weightless, Andrew navigated a slew of weird reporting challenges. 
And there was one more, participant observation. That's what a sociologist might call it. Journalists refer to it as immersion journalism. Think of it as not just reporting by observation, but actually joining in, understanding something by direct experience. Of course, in this case, how could Andrew not be immersed? He was on the plane. But what makes this more of a participatory reporting trip is Andrew's disability. He's losing his sight. I have a retinal disease called retinitis pigmentosa. It's a kind of tunnel vision that gradually narrows from the outside in. Andrew was diagnosed with it as a teen. At first, he noticed he had trouble seeing in the dark. Then his daytime vision became impaired. And now he's in his 40s and his sight is diminished further. I use a white cane walking around and I've started to listen to, you know, my emails and web pages and stuff using a screen reader, um, books, you know, I tend to listen to rather than read visually. And, and if I do want to read a book that's not available digitally, I'll use magnification. Andrew told me he has low vision, so he can still see things, but he's legally blind. Like when he recorded his side of our conversation, he could see the red lights on his recorder to make sure he's recording, but he goes by ear for levels. You know, I don't know for sure, like, when my vision will change more, but I think it's safe to assume that, like, over the next 10 years, it will significantly change. And, uh, yeah, so I'm kind of, like, preparing for that and thinking about that and dealing with that. One of the ways he's making sense of what's happening to his eyes is by reporting, asking questions like, what constitutes disability? How does society view disability? And does it need to change? He's written for The New Yorker about pro-tactile. It's a way of communicating through touch for deaf-blind people. He had an article in The New York Times Magazine about acting blind on TV. And of course, there's this Radiolab story where he's immersing himself wearing two hats, reporter and someone who's experiencing the parabolic flight with a disability. That dual role was helpful. He says the team at Radiolab saw the value that Andrew could offer unique insight and maybe, just maybe, even have his own story arc, too, as he progresses through the reporting. Same story with getting on the plane. I don't think I would have gotten access if I wasn't disabled, you know? Like, if I hadn't been a disabled journalist who made this argument that, like, you know, they had a film crew, but, like, for blind people, wouldn't it be better to do a radio documentary? You know, like they had a person on their staff who was like super stoked on that idea. And so I think like that's how I got there in the first place. But wearing two hats did cause confusion for participants from time to time. So you're one of the ambassadors. Um, I should say that I was also wearing a flight suit. No. I, that's why I'm confused. Okay. I'm not. I okay. am But you press. could be. I could be because technically I'm disabled. I do want to get your response to something that you wrote to me in an email. And here's what you said. Pretty much every story I'm doing these days is tension between being a participant and an observer. That is always a tension with that kind of stunt slash adventure slash action journalism. You're doing the thing that your subjects are, which makes you a bit more than a fly on the wall. But I think disability complicates that since it's part of an identity. So it's not just like I'm a rock climbing journalist, rock climbing with other rock climbers. It's more complicated, complicated even more by my complicated relationship with the moving target of my own identity as disabled. What do you mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> um, you know, so like in some ways, I think what I was trying to get at when I said that to you, Rob, was that 
like the the immersion that I was doing wasn't just about going on the plane. It was about like being a blind guy on the plane specifically and complicated more by the fact that I was like a ambiguously blind guy who's like trying to figure out what that means too. And that the plane flight in some ways and talking to the people on it helped me a little bit figure that out one or two degrees more than I had before I got on the plane. How so? Um, I mean, I think it's about how non-disabled people relate to you. You know, it's in that moment in the very beginning when, when, when the former astronaut says to me like, oh, so you're obviously one of the ambassadors. And there was a lot more of it that didn't make it into the story of just like tons of these interactions between the non-disabled people who are there to help and the disabled people. And it's something around how to negotiate unnecessary help and low expectations from people who look at a disabled person and think like, oh, that person is definitely going to need help and is definitely not here just like in the normal capacity that everybody else is here in. It's extremely disorienting. I forgot which way the floor was, but I found it. If I was totally blind, I'm trying to imagine how I would be doing this. So the plan is we're going to do 15 parabolas. And as we keep going, I'm trying to get around and talk to people and observe things. And I'm in a snow globe that a toddler is shaking every minute. I don't think a single person is doing an experiment on this plane. Just the, just the getting through each parabola is an experiment. And then I find out later that the blind crew... Turns out there was a narrative arc to Andrew's experience. Initially, in the story, he's more of an observer. You hear him describing what he's seeing, and each time he goes weightless, he and the others become more acclimated. Eric is doing, like, breakdancing disco moves. Monica is doing some... Lie back down, lie back down. But then there's a turn in the story, and Andrew's personal connection to the experience becomes clear. Like... Around the end of the first set of parabolas, there was this moment where Eric and Sawyer, who were in the mobility group, sort of floated into standing positions. All right, so apparently, in lunar gravity, I can stand, so that's cool. And I started crying. I'm having kind of an emotional reaction to that. And I really didn't want to be crying. I can't imagine doing this with people who can walk. And I felt really bad that I was crying. And why would you feel bad about that? It seemed to come out of the sense of liberation that like, you know, the wheelchair user, wheelchair, like that, that like their disability had been erased and that's a thing to celebrate because that goes against everything that I'm trying to understand and, and sort of frame, situate myself in, towards, right? Like, I feel like as I become more blind, it's, it's really complicated for me because like what I'm going through right now is a loss. And I'm experiencing it as a loss. Like, it's a literal loss, but there's all this emotional loss connected to it, too. But at the same time, like, I am recognizing elements of blindness that are interesting. And, like, it's tricky. Like, part of me wants to, like, go with the Sherry route of being like, and maybe even it's making me better. You know, and I'm not there yet. But at the very least, I don't want to see disability as a negative trait that should be erased. Andrew says those complicated emotions are what he's after in his reporting on disability because the issues he faces are not clear cut. The thing that's exciting for me about this Radiolab story and like a lot of the other stuff I'm working on right now is that like I feel very clear about 
the kind of story I'm trying to make, which is that as we discussed, like that I'm in this really interesting place right now where like I can sort of pass as non-disabled, like less and less. But at the same time, I'm like, all this stuff is new to me. And so like, I'm sort of undergoing this like active identity transformation. And so it puts me in this cool, what I think of as like a really almost privileged spot where I can sort of still be an outsider and still be like, huh, like, what is that about disability? You know, and ask those questions in sort of a earnest way that I think would bring a non-disabled listener into it. But then also like, because I have skin in the game, like there's, it also gives it sort of an urgency that makes the storytelling feel really exciting and fun to me too. Andrew Leland. I've included links to his Radiolab story and to Andrew's work in The Times and The New Yorker at the post of this episode of How Sound at transom.org. Speaking of Radiolab, Robert Krowich is a former host of the show and a longtime reporter at NPR. He's written a new manifesto for Transom, a love letter to radio called Consider Your Ears. It's a must read. I had to laugh as I read it because he features one of my favorite pieces of audio, something I'd often play in my classes. It's really corny, but so good. It's a skit from Stan Freeberg called Stretching the Imagination. So yeah, go get inspired at transom.org. Ari Daniel pops anti-nausea pills every time he sees a new house sound script he needs to edit. Jay Allison probably does it too. PRX and Transom co-produced this show. I track in the studios of WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Thanks to everyone. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thank you for listening. So here's my next question. Can you riff out a radio poem for me right now? <laughs> uh, the, the brine of Rob Rosenthal's mind is a kind of sonic time that dilates in the Hindenburg session of the wind. From PRX. And transom.org.